This is They Create Worlds, episode 134. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today, we are going to play our front-loading NES as we learn all about Famicom, which was totally not front-loading in Japan and looked completely different and actually had a microphone. Uh, Yes, I suppose it did. Today, we will indeed be looking at the family computer, which many people did call the Famicom, but was actually not officially named the Famicom. In fact, Hiroshi Amauchi really hated that term and uh, forbade it from being used in any uh, literature and whatnot. There was also the fact that Sharp, for whatever reason, the Sharp Corporation, had just a couple of years earlier released a microwave oven that was called the Famicom. Led to a bit of tension between the two companies that had been allies for several years at that point. So we call it the Famicom... Nintendo calls it the family computer. No matter what you decide to call it, it is certainly one of the biggest video game phenomenons that ever hit Japan. Today, we are going to go in-depth on the background that led Nintendo to do a console in the first place, like the Famicom, and then go into the creation of said system. That'll be part one of this two-part look. And then Next time around, we will look at the actual launch of the system and the humongous impact it had on Japanese society over the next few years. Wait, we're actually deciding to do a two-parter before we actually start talking for two hours? Yes, sometimes Alex knows when he's going to talk way too long. Sometimes. (laughs) This is one of those times. Okay. Great A planning, kids. Great A planning. <laughs> Everyone in the United States, at least, and to a lesser extent, Europe and so on, knows a lot about the NES. We played a lot of the games. A lot of the Japanese games came over to the United States. So mm-hmm. we're very familiar with the games. We're very familiar with the console. And we've seen sort of like the top loader part of it, especially with the NES version 2, which was sort of a stopgap thing between the NES and the Super Nintendo. Budget version, yep. Yeah, the budget version. But in Japan, it really is an older technology, something that was in the late 70s, early 80s technology there that has been pushed nearly an entire decade, if you really look at it, because of expansion chips within cartridges and stuff. A lot of the early NES games were very pixely, a very Mm -hmm. early arcade, 70s arcade style. Nintendo has already been in the arcade sphere with Donkey Kong, other properties, and then they Mm -hmm. decide, you know, stuff is so much fun, let's extort a bunch of money out of people in their homes. Something like that. Of course, Nintendo had been in the home before as well. They did dedicated Pong consoles in the 70s. There really is a natural progression to how all of this happened. If you just kind of look at the products without knowing some of the story behind each of them, you might be like, okay, this was a card company, and then they're making toys, and now they're making arcade games, and then there's the Famicom. 
what's going on here. There is actually a very logical progression from the toy company Nintendo to the video game company Nintendo. And it really makes sense to kind of start there to give a little context to where the company was at when they actually did the family computer. Nintendo got into toys in the 1960s because of their employee, Gunpei Yokoi, we did a whole episode on, so we don't need to dwell on here. They moved into electronic toys specifically because he was somebody that had some electrical engineering background and who could move the company in that direction. At the very end of the 1960s, they come up with this new game concept, the Nintendo Beam Gun. The reason that this happens is that a fellow by the name of Masayuki Uemura is an engineer at Sharp, who we just mentioned earlier with their microwave ovens called Famicom. Sharp had a new photovoltaic cell that they were trying to sell around, and Uemura was uh, an engineer that was also a sales representative, sales engineer, and it approached Nintendo with these photovoltaic cells. As we discussed in our Yokoi episode, Gunpei Yokoi thought that this would be an absolutely perfect thing to incorporate into some kind of shooting game. And that's how we got the Nintendo Beam Gun products at the beginning of the 1970s, where you shoot the lion and the lion falls over, you shoot the cowboy, cowboy drops dead, because you have the light gun that you're using, and then there's the cells on the targets, and then a a reaction occurs. These were a pretty big hit. Yamauchi started to wonder if, because this was such a big hit, maybe there's a way that we can adapt this where adults would like to use it too. Because we talked about this before, I think, particularly in our Namco episode. The Japanese like shooting as a sport, just like a lot of Americans like shooting as a sport. But there are very, very restrictive gun laws in Japan. Very, very restrictive. So for people that like to do just recreational shooting, that's a very hard thing to be able to do. So when uh, Yamauchi saw how successful these children toys were, he was like, well, maybe adults can do some shooting with this kind of technology too. He told Yokoi to look into this, and Yokoi came up with an idea that we did talk about in our Yokoi episode called the Laser Clay Range, which is basically just a giant simulated skeet shooting activity where you have an adult-sized light gun that you're holding instead of a little toy gun. You have a much bigger space to give the sense of depth that you need for that. Then you have clay pigeons projected on a screen. You have a whole light gun system that allows you to target and shoot at those clay pigeons. So they decide in about 1973 to implement this system, and at first the timing seems very fortuitous. As we'll see in a second, it wasn't. But there had been a bowling fad in Japan that had been going on for about a decade now. Bowling became extremely, extremely popular in Japan in the 1960s. But right at the beginning of the 1970s, that bowling boom in Japan had collapsed. So you had a lot of bowling alleys, which are big spaces, something that you don't see everywhere in Japan. You had a lot of bowling alleys with lots of lanes that were suddenly having trouble attracting business and were potentially going to have to go out of business. These were the absolutely perfect places 
to put these laser clay shooting ranges. Yokoi and Uemura, who actually joined Nintendo from Sharp because he had so much fun putting together these toys that he actually leaves Sharp and joins Nintendo, put together these laser clay ranges. They demo them. The demos are a huge success. Everyone is positive this is going to be a big thing. Orders start pouring in. Bowling alleys can't wait to have this new source of revenue that's going to save their business through this conversion process. Then the oil embargo begins. The Arab companies of OPEC, the major oil producers at that time, in response to Western support for the Israelis during the Yom Kippur War, which was an attempt by Egypt and Syria to stage a surprise attack on Israel and take back territory that they considered to be theirs or that they considered to belong to Arabs. It's the Middle East. It's always complicated. Because of the failure of that war by the Egyptians and the Syrians and the continuing Western support for Israel, the Arab oil-producing countries decided to cut exports to many Western countries and their allies. Obviously, Japan is not a Western country, but it is also aligned with the Western blocs. In the United States, this resulted in gasoline rationing, long lines at the gas pumps. Jeff and I aren't quite old enough to remember this, but our parents certainly are. People just a little bit older than us are certainly able to remember those gas lines. In Japan, it was even worse because the U.S. did have some domestic oil production. Obviously, today we have a lot because of fracking and all of these controversial processes. Even back then, of course, you did have some oil in the United States, so it was painful, but it wasn't completely devastating. Japan is a series of islands. Japan imports over 90% of its oil. Of course, there's a butterfly effect because not only can Japan not get oil from the Arab countries, but the countries like the United States that relied on foreign oil as well had to keep more of their domestic production internal to make up for the loss. And so Japan, that imported something like 96% of its oil, this is a problem. It was a very bad recession in Japan. This is not the time to be starting a new expensive leisure business, because, of course, when you have to cut back, when you can't spend as much money, the first thing that goes is luxuries and leisure activities that you can get by without. All of those orders that were flooding in to Nintendo for the Laser Clay range system canceled. This was a devastating period in Nintendo history, and I mean truly devastating. They had taken out loans, they had put a lot of money behind this system, and they were already ramping up production to fill orders that had already come in. I mean, not even just speculating on, oh, maybe we could sell this many systems. They had orders, and then those orders were gone. It's not the only crisis the company has ever faced, but it was a dire crisis. Nintendo, the video game company, which is the company that we are mostly familiar with, is a company that has always dealt from a position of strength, even in console generations where they were comparably less successful, like when they did the GameCube or the Wii U. They were always a cash-rich company, 
They always had other product lines, like, say, their handhelds, like the DS, that were bucking them up. Even in periods where Nintendo has been in some distress in our lifetimes, they've never really been in distress. We don't really think about the fact that before 1981, there were several moments where the Nintendo company could have ceased to exist, and this was one of them. It was very bad. They were in deep debt. To overcome this, they knew they had to do something. What they decided to do is adapt the laser clay ranges into more traditional coin-operated games, which were something that were fairly popular in Japan. That sector was, of course, hit by the oil shock as well, though that industry didn't completely fall apart because it was something that was local. Like if you had a game center nearby, that was a relatively cheap form of recreation that you could go do. The games aren't that expensive at this time. Most games are running 50 yen. You're starting a little bit to see 100 yen games coming in, but it's mostly 50 yen. It's very cheap. You don't have to travel. It's not like a vacation to go do it. So that sector was doing all right, even though the Japanese economy wasn't in great shape. This was an area that Nintendo could move into fairly quickly and fairly easily by adapting the laser clay range technology. And of course, that's how we got the uh, famous Wild Gunman. No, not that Wild Gunman. Not the one you played on your Famicom. Not the one that Michael J. Fox played in Back to the Future Part 2, which actually isn't even the real Wild Gunman. They actually created a special cabinet and special game footage. The Wild Gunman in that movie doesn't even exist in the real world. It's not those Wild Gunmans. It's the Wild Gunman film strip game, where there's filmed footage of cowboys on the screen, and there's a moment in time when you have a chance to shoot them before they shoot you. There will actually be eyes that flash on the screen or some other thing on the screen that flashes, and that's your signal that you need to shoot right now in order to defeat the cowboy. And if you do, you get the victory condition, yay, you won. If not, you get a boo, you lost. There's actually two projectors in this electromechanical game system, and so it would switch film reels between those two projectors based on your success or fail state. You've seen footage of that one, haven't you? I mean, obviously, we've never played one. Yeah, we've seen footage of it. I think in our Gunpei Yukoi, or at the very least, our Light Gun episode, I have examples of Wild Gunman, the original one. The footage is a bit grainy, a little bit washed out, because it's really hard to capture that onto film or any kind of camera, since you can't really pull the image directly into a computer very easily. It literally is a film strip. Take your gun out, you shoot the guy, he goes down, you win, you lose. It's simplistic for the time. It's simplistic by today's standards, but it's still really, really interesting and good. Absolutely, and we'll actually put some new footage in the show notes of that because a fellow researcher that does a great job, Kate Willert, actually just did a video and a blog post on Wild Gunman and discovered that there was an old B-movie, terrible movie called Gas that actually has an extended Wild Gunman playing session in it, of all things. We can actually link to Kate's wonderful work on that and some of the new discoveries of footage that were made there. That's how Nintendo got into coin-op, is trying to 
survive after this disaster with the laser clay ranges, which was a direct extension of its toy business and making that palatable to adults. So there is a continuum there that becomes clear when you connect all those dots. Once they've got the film strip thing going in coin-op, they start taking this in new directions as well. So we've talked before about how there was a metal game fad in Japan at this time. Metal games being slot machines and similar gambling-style devices where instead of putting coins into them and winning coins, you put medals in them, just little circular metal medals. They pay out in medals. Gambling's illegal in Japan. All of that stuff is highly restricted. So these metal games allowed for some of the thrill of gambling without the financial side. Obviously, there was a lot of gray market gambling that did go on where if you won medals, the person in the game center would tell you, if you take those medals to my friend around the corner, he may give you a little something. But don't tell anyone. It's a secret to everybody. Before you take this and go get some real prizes. Exactly. So obviously that gray market stuff went on, but theoretically this was a way to simulate gambling without money changing hands. It's actually pretty fascinating with the whole metals thing. It's so prevalent in Japan about how they just take these tokens and you turn them in for prizes that you see this reflected in a lot of Japanese video games. Oh, yes. Definitely you see this in the Dragon Quest series, but you also see it in other game series where if there is some sort of gaming element, you take your money, you turn it into tokens, you play the games, you take those tokens, you go get prizes. Exactly. That is very much a very Japanese cultural thing that is, is reflected in those kinds of games. As you said, of course, the casinos in Dragon Quest games where you have to do the special currency. Because metal games are so popular, Nintendo then starts adapting some of its arcade game technology into this new metal game. They do a game in 1975 called EVR Race. EVR is reference to the format of videotape they're using, a very specific proprietary videotape format. EVR Race is a horse betting game. Sometimes people call that Nintendo's first video game, but it's not really a video game. It's a metal game. It's one of these games that's designed to go in the casino-style game centers. Pay your token, you bet on a horse race, then on videotape, this horse race plays out, and you get your winnings if you win. It's a metal game. It's, it's not even an electromechanical, coin-operated entertainment piece like Wild Gunman. Everyone is going into this field. We've talked about that several times. We talked about how Konami was big into that. We talked about how Taito was big into that. I mean, this this was the times. During this whole period is the exact same period of time where home video games are starting to take off in the United States with the Home Pong units and the Coleco Telstar. There are a lot of companies in the 1976-1977 period that want to get into this very lucrative new dedicated video game console market, both in the United States and in Europe. There's really not a lot of domestic video game activity going on in Japan at this time. There have been a couple of attempts. 
1975, a company named Jolieb imports the original Magnavox Odyssey, the 1972 system that was uh, largely created by Ralph Baer's team at Sanders Associates. If you get nothing else out of this episode at all, I want you all to internalize that a company named Jolieb, a trading company, an import-export kind of company, imported the Odyssey into Japan. It was not Nintendo. If you read David Sheff's book, Game Over, which in many ways is a phenomenal book, but if you read that book, it will tell you that Nintendo imported the Odyssey into Japan. This myth has continued to perpetuate. There was even a recent, at the time of this recording in March 2021, a recent documentary series that was, quite frankly, awful, called Playing With Power, that once again perpetuated this idea that Nintendo imported the Magnavox Odyssey. They did not. We have two very important pieces of evidence for this. One is that Japanese sources, including Japanese newspaper advertisements, clearly show that this other company, Jolieb, was selling the Odyssey. That's number one. Number two, Nintendo is one of the most collected brands by video game aficionados on the planet. Every last little product Nintendo ever did, no matter how rare, has been collected by somebody. And there are pictures of it online. There's a phenomenal blog called Before Mario, which is dedicated to documenting every last thing Nintendo released, no matter how obscure, before their Famicom system launched. There has never, ever, ever been an Odyssey system with Nintendo branding discovered. I'm sure that systems that were being imported into Japan were not being custom manufactured for Japan. I'm sure that all that was being done is that it was the American box that was being sent over and then stickers were used to put the Japanese companies, the Japanese distributors' name on the American box. You know, they'd cover over the Magnavox name with whatever name they want to put on there. It's not like there are custom odysseys that were specifically Japanese odysseys. With how Nintendo is collected, with how fervent collectors are about having Nintendo products, if there was a Nintendo-released odyssey in Japan, we'd have one. Not you and I personally, but the collective body of video game collectors would have one. Effectively, if it was actually being sold out there, there would be more than one copy of this console out there. We even have Nintendo's one console of the Nintendo and Sony combination there as a test unit. (laughs) We have that one. There's only one surviving thing of that. If we have that, (laughs) we should have Odysseys that have Nintendo on it, especially if they were sold. Exactly. But like I said, we're not just relying on the absence of evidence because we also have proof that another company was actually releasing it. Where did this myth come from? You'd have to ask David Sheff what his sources were, and I'm sure at this point he has no idea just because he wrote that book 30 years ago. 
I think it's two things. First of all, Nintendo did have a Magnavox Odyssey connection. There was a light gun for the Odyssey. Nintendo's beam gun toy rifles were actually the molds used for the Magnavox Odyssey light gun. Nintendo actually manufactured the light guns for the Magnavox Odyssey because they had the technology, they had the molds. I'm sure Magnavox was pleased to go with a Far East manufacturer because that was generally cheaper, and that is a real connection. They manufactured those light guns. The other thing is, when Nintendo did create their own dedicated consoles, they did take a Magnavox license. Remember that Magnavox has patents on basic video game technology, particularly the collision detection that goes on in a ball and paddle game like Pong. We did a whole episode on Magnavox lawsuits explaining this if you want more info on that. Companies were required to take a license from Magnavox for these video games or they ended up getting sued. While a lot of American companies fought this in court, which is what that whole episode is about, most Asian companies that were involved in this, they just took the license. Nintendo did take a Magnavox license eventually, but that license isn't a license to sell the system that is known as the Magnavox Odyssey. That license is to license Magnavox's patents so that you can make your own system. So I think the combination of having manufactured the guns and having been a Magnavox licensee is probably where this confusion comes in about them releasing the Odyssey in Japan, but they just did not. Even though this is a Famicom episode, if you take nothing else away from that this episode, please, please, please tell all your friends, because I know they'll be super interested in this, <laughs> tell all your friends that Nintendo did not release the Magnavox Odyssey in Japan. Okay, well, now that we've done that to death, where were we going with this initially? As I was saying, you have the dedicated console boom In the mid-70s, you have a lot of American companies that want to get in on this. You have a lot of European companies that want to get in on this. But there's not a lot of chip design expertise. You're having to get your chips from other sources. If you're an electronics importer or a toy company or whatever else that is trying to get involved in this. And of course, as we've talked about before, particularly in our Coleco episode... One of the main chip companies was General Instrument, who came up with the first Pong-on-a-chip system. It was relatively cheap, and it meant that just about anyone could get involved. A lot of the American companies were using this GI chip, but again, a lot of them were electronics importers. A lot of them were department stores that were interested in doing private label business. These, again, were not companies that were even going to put a system together around the chip. They were going to subcontract to somebody else to come up with controls, to come up with a casing, to come up with the printed circuit board that this GI chip is going to plug into. A lot of that business was being done in the Far East. Hong Kong was a big part of it, but so was Japan, because this is right before Japan gets its reputation for being a sophisticated electronics location. Japan is actually in kind of the same category of being able to do cheaper manufacturing that we more associate today with places like Taiwan, Hong Kong, and mainland China today, but in the 80s and 90s was kind of associated with Hong Kong and Taiwan more. There was a company in Japan called Systek, S-Y-S-T-E-K, 
that was involved in this Pong manufacturing business. And they had contracts with a couple of companies in the U.S., electronics importers, Unisonic and Lloyd's. They're not important companies to know, but just know that these are companies that specialized in sourcing electronics, whether that be calculators, watches, video game systems, from Far Eastern companies that they could then market under their own name in the United States. Systec had a deal and was supplying consoles to some of these companies, but Systec wanted to get away from the general instrument chip that everyone was using. They wanted to have their own chip that they could market to their potential clients as another way for them to stand out from the crowd. Systec doesn't have chip design expertise either, but Systec turns to Mitsubishi. I know in the United States that Mitsubishi is probably associated with cars more than anything else, but Mitsubishi is a very old Japanese saibatsu that was and is involved in all sorts of stuff. I mean, they did the cars, obviously, but they also did airplanes. They do all sorts of electronics. Actually, in the 1980s, my family had a a Mitsubishi television, for instance. Think of them sort of the 3M of Japan. (laughs) Right. So they're involved in all sorts of things. They have chip design expertise. So Systec goes to Mitsubishi and says, we would like you to make us a chip that will allow us to do a video game similar to what the GI chips do so that we can use this chip in our systems that we are offering to these American companies, Unisonic and Lloyd's, as part of this whole console boom. And Mitsubishi's like, that sounds great to us. Mitsubishi gets to work on this chip. Then Systec enters bankruptcy. This is a tough time. The calculator market's collapsing. Of course, you've got the oil shock in Japan. There's there's all sorts of factors going on. Systec becomes a victim of all of this and goes out of business. Mitsubishi is left holding the bag. They have created this chip. It was going to be sole source to Systec. Systec is no longer there. Just like Nintendo with their laser clay ranges, obviously this isn't something that's going to be a complete and utter disaster for Mitsubishi generally, because Mitsubishi is a much bigger company than Nintendo, and they can take the hit. They still don't like the idea of losing this money, and just like Nintendo, they've been ramping up manufacturing for a product that no longer has a market. Well, it just so happens that Mitsubishi has also been a partner of Nintendo with the laser clay ranges, with the EVR games. They've been providing a lot of the electronic know-how to Nintendo on some of their advanced products. And of course, Mitsubishi knows that Nintendo is also a toy company. So Mitsubishi's like, we made this video game chip. The company we made it for is out of business, but we're still stuck with these things. Would you like them? Masayuki Uemura at Nintendo, who's the one that they approach about this, who's kind of the number two guy in electronics, uh, you know, after Yokoi, is like, yes, this sounds wonderful. Uemura goes to Yamauchi and says, we have this offer. Yamauchi thinks about it and is like, okay, that's interesting, but... Video games have not done well in Japan. I mentioned that Jolieb introduced the Odyssey in 75. It didn't do much. 
the first domestically produced console was Epoch or Epic, however you want to pronounce that word, E-P-O-C-H. Television Tennis in uh, 1975 as well, but it was expensive, relatively speaking. The Odyssey was expensive, relatively speaking. People were not interested in that product at that price in Japan. So Yamauchi said, this is a good idea for a product, but only if it is under 10,000 yen. Of course, as always, we will take this opportunity to go to our Fancy Pants Inflation Calculator and Historic Conversion to put that number in something approaching context. Obviously, you know, because exchange rates fluctuate throughout the year, this is not going to be exact or anything. In 1977, there were about 268 yen to the dollar. So you're talking about something that is only $37 in 1977 U.S. money. But if we plug that into the inflation calculator... That is a system that is selling for about $160 in the modern day. We're talking about something pretty darn cheap from a video game perspective here. We're talking about getting something that today would sell $160 at retail, which is pretty cheap for video games. Yamauchi says, if you can't get it below 10,000 yen, People aren't going to buy it. It's not going to be worth it. So Uemura and a couple of others work on this problem, work on it with Mitsubishi. They discover that they cannot do it, no matter how hard they try. They can't get it under about 15,000 yen, which is not the deal. What they do is they decide to release two systems instead. The base game plays 15 different ball and paddle games. So they call that the Color TV 15. Then they release a limited version that only plays six games, the Color TV 6, that they can retail for 9,800 yen. They just take out some of the features to make it cheaper. By doing this, they're able to advertise that they have a system on the market that is under 10,000 yen, which is exciting to the people. They are also still then able to offer something that is more expensive and has the full range of functionality that they actually want. They released these systems in 1977. The more expensive one actually is the one that sells the best because it is full featured. It turns out that people are ready to buy something a little higher than 10,000. I'm sure part of it, though, is because the low end system was there. They could advertise it as saying, we have a system under 10,000 and people are like, under 10,000, that's great. Let's go to the store. And then they get to the store and they're like, oh, the one under 10,000 doesn't have everything. So I guess we'll buy the more expensive one. They sell a million of these things total 700,000 of the TV 15, 300,000 of the TV 6. Again, Chef says that they sold a million of each. That is a mistake. I'm sure that was probably a translation goof when he was talking to people that they told him it was a million of both combined, and he thought that they told him it was a million of each one separately. They sell a million total. It's a major hit. They work with Mitsubishi to create follow-up systems over the next couple of years. 
and have themselves a nice little business until that whole dedicated console thing becomes blasé and nobody wants them anymore. They also get expertise. By the time they're doing the last games in this series, they are able to actually do a lot of the electronics themselves because they sent a couple of their guys to Mitsubishi to work closely with the Mitsubishi engineers and learn all the ins and outs of the circuit design. By the time the Color TV game series is through, they have the knowledge to do their own hardware, at least to some degree. Very important. Obviously, while this is going on, Space Invaders launches, the world moves on. Now it's video games that are the hot new thing, and Nintendo plunges wholeheartedly into video arcade games. They're still looking for that thing that is going to pull them out of that financial crisis they found themselves in in 73. The dedicated video games helped a lot. The early electromechanical arcade games and metal games, not as much. Some of them were decently well-received, but they had a lot of maintenance headaches, particularly those EVR games had a lot of maintenance headaches. So even though they got a lot of orders, they started to get a reputation as not having the quality needed for the rigors of the game center environment. So they're still casting around. They have a couple of Space Invaders clones. One of them, Space Firebird, does very well. Another one, Radar Scope, does not. If you only take two facts away from this podcast. The first one, what was the first one? The first one is that Nintendo is not responsible for bringing the Magnavox over to Japan. Exactly. The second one is Radar Scope was not successful in Japan. There are a lot of sources that are generally, uh, in other ways, very good sources that say that Radar Scope was very popular in Japan, which is why Nintendo of America was going to make that their launch game. Then Radar Scope failed in the U.S., and then they converted it to Donkey Kong. The second half of that is true. Radar Scope was going to be the launch game for Nintendo of America. It didn't do well, and then they did Donkey Kong and converted Radar Scope. That's true. Radar Scope was not a success in Japan either. Masayuki Uemura himself, who was in charge of all of this arcade game development, told the publication Nikkei Electronics when they did a big Famicom retrospective in the 90s, flat out told them that it was not a success in Japan either, that it was not a success anywhere. Nintendo did have a successful Space Invaders clone in Japan, Space Firebird, which sold very well, tens of thousands because it was riding on the coattails of Space Invaders. Radar Scope was not popular in Japan either. It was not the number two game in Japanese game centers behind Pac-Man. It was not a big hit that they knew was going to take the world by storm. It was just there. That's the second fact that you need to take away from this. Two important facts. This is a Famicom episode. We don't want you to remember anything about the Famicom. We just want you to remember these two facts. Help correct the historical record. Be good historians. Anyway. Uemura does these arcade games. Some of them do well. Some of them do less well. They're looking for the next big thing. They go into the handhelds then with the Game & Watch. We won't cover that here because that's Yokoi. We did the Yokoi episode. We've got that whole story. Finally, in 1980, they hit on the Game & Watch. Game & Watch is a humongous success in Japan. It, along with Donkey Kong, finally pulls Nintendo out of that funk that they have been in with still trying to pay off this disastrous laser clay range failure. 
they are soaring to new heights under Gunpei Yokoi. Gunpei Yokoi's team was responsible for the Game & Watch. Gunpei Yokoi's team was responsible for Donkey Kong. Miyamoto created Donkey Kong, but as we discussed in our Yokoi episode, he did that under Yokoi's supervision. Uemura, who did have a big hit with the Color TV dedicated consoles, who did have a decent hit with Space Firebird, has kind of been languishing. In 1979, Nintendo split its R&D into two different teams. Yokoi took charge of what was then called Research and Development Number 1, and Uemura took charge of Research and Development Number 2. Yokoi's R&D 1 is doing the Game & Watch. Uemura's team is, well, not doing much. Their later arcade games aren't getting the same traction. The team is getting smaller and smaller. I think at one point it goes down to literally two people because they start funneling more and more of the engineering talent to R&D 1 because they're doing this huge series of Game & Watch games and they need more people. Uemura is starting to get a little bit nervous that, you know, not probably going to be fired because Nintendo is still very much in the traditional Japanese model of lifetime employment at this point, I think, but is very worried that he's about to just not matter at all in the company anymore. Then Yamauchi cannot come to terms with Coleco on selling the ColecoVision in Japan. We talked about this in our Coleco episode, and I think there's a previous Nintendo episode we've talked about it as well. Coleco in 1982 came to Nintendo because they had a pre-existing relationship. Of course, Donkey Kong had been licensed for the ColecoVision, but they were also both toy companies. They had a bit of a kinship because Coleco, as we of course discussed in our two-part Coleco episode, was a company that had been in a completely different business and then got into toys. Nintendo was the same, completely different business, got into toys. Nintendo felt, and Yamauchi felt a bit of connection to Coleco for that reason. They had distributed other Coleco toys. They had, of course, licensed Donkey Kong and some other games for the ColecoVision. They had a rapport. Coleco was starting to look at international expansion of the ColecoVision after their successful launch. Well, it hadn't quite launched when the steelmaking was going on, but what looked like it was going to be a successful launch at this point in the United States. Leonard Greenberg and Burt Reiner come to Nintendo and try to negotiate a deal to distribute ColecoVision in Japan. And as we've said before, they can't come to terms. The margins or the, the volume or whatever else, whatever little niggling terms they couldn't come to an agreement on. Yamauchi finally said to Leonard Greenberg, well, fine, then we will just build our own console with blackjack and hookers. Very risque. Yes, very risque, especially for Nintendo, right? No, but they said, fine, we'll build our own console. And as Burt Reiner tells the story, told it in the book High Score, told it to me as well, he and Leonard Greenberg left that meeting, and they just kind of laughed to themselves. It's like, ha, ha, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, Nintendo's going to do their own programmable console. Yeah, whatever. Good luck with that, man. And then Mr. Yamauchi calls Masayuki Uemura and tells him, you will be creating a video game console for Nintendo. This console must sell for under, once again, 10,000 yen. Obviously, this is a few years later, and there's been a little inflation, but 
basically you need to sell a full programmable video game console with a microprocessor and a custom graphics chip and all of this complexity for the same price that we sold our six-game dedicated ball and paddle unit with no microprocessor back in 1977. Have you lost your mind? But again, Yamauchi knows... And it's the same thing that happened with the Color TV 6 and Color TV 15. Programmable consoles have been released in Japan at this point. There's been importation of American consoles like the VCS and the Intellivision. There has also been a small amount of domestic production, again with Epic taking the lead on that with their cassette vision. He knows that the other Japanese manufacturers are not having a great deal of success selling their systems because of price. He knows that these other companies are trying to get their consoles to about the 20,000 yen mark in order to make them palatable. He knows that if Nintendo can really undercut that while delivering something powerful, that nobody else is going to have a chance. It's going to be the color TV game systems all over again. I didn't mention at the time, but. Nintendo ended up with about 70% of the dedicated console business with their color TV systems in Japan. Several other companies that were looking at releasing dedicated systems, like Matsushita, big electronics company, they just canceled their plans because Nintendo had steamrollered over them with their cheap, effective system. Because they're not bargain basement. Yamauchi is all about undercutting the competition, but only with a superior system in performance. It doesn't need to be the highest performing system on the market, but it needs to be a good performer. He's not just selling junk, which is why he eventually acquiesced with the Color TV games to allowing them to release the Color TV game 15 at the higher price point because he knew that the quality had to be there. But he knew that if he pushed his engineers to release a system as cheaply as possible, they would do everything in their power to create a cheap, high-quality system, even if they don't quite reach his price goals. I mean, I think he deliberately made them somewhat unattainable to focus his engineers on cutting out all the extraneous stuff. That's the mandate. Make us a console, 10,000 yen, uncopyable by the competition for at least three years, something that's going to last at least three years without the competition cloning it or doing a better job of it. It has to be the best thing on the market at the lowest price. He knew that the Game & Watch had done very well with a three-year life cycle. It was starting to flag now, but they, he knew that the Game & Watch was realistically a three-year product. So he saw no reason why this video game system shouldn't be a three-year product as well. Zuimur is like, okay, I guess it's great that I'm not about to be fired or demoted. Sidelined, I would say. Sidelined, that's a good word. He has a very small team at this point. It's basically just him. There might be one or two others running around, but it's basically just him and a guy named Katsuya Nakakawa, who was an electronic circuit prodigy. He had been building stuff as a teenager. He came into Nintendo, ironically, in the same way Yokoi did. Yokoi started as a maintenance man, and then they realized he had talent and made him an engineer. Nakakawa came in in 1979 as a maintenance man, and then they recognized his obvious and uh, expansive talent and, and placed him under Uemura in R&D, too. And he was the primary hardware designer on 
their arcade games, including both Radar Scope and Donkey Kong. Uemura and Nakakawa start Project Gamecom in the spring of 1982. Their primary goals as they start this process are that they should have something that plays Donkey Kong well, because Donkey Kong is the big hit of the moment in Nintendo circles, and they should have something that rivals the capability of the ColecoVision, which is kind of the, the newest hotness coming out in the United States. The first task, really, in kind of putting this hardware together is choosing the microprocessor that is going to serve as the heart of the system. At this time in Japan, there is no 8-bit processor that is more popular than the Z80. The Z80 is an update of Intel's 8080 processor. Basically, the main chip designer at Intel, the main designer of the 8080, Federico Fagin, left Intel to found his own company, Zilog, and released the Z80 as a completely 8080-compatible chip that was also a more effective chip than the 8080. That chip had become very popular in a lot of applications around the world, but in particular in Japan. Arcade games were using it in Japan. It was a big deal in the U.S. The ColecoVision, which again was a major inspiration, was a Z80-based system. So they're looking at the Z80 processor, and they're looking for chip manufacturers. They start looking for domestic chip manufacturers that can work with them on this project. They're having trouble finding anyone that will work with them. But then through a couple of strange coincidences, they end up with a very fruitful partnership with the company RICO, R-I-C-O-H. It just so happens that RICO, back in 1981, had built a new factory for uh, manufacturing chips that was operating at only 10% capacity. They were having trouble getting orders themselves. It also happened that one of the senior executives at RICO was a gentleman by the name of Hiromitsu Yagi, who had been one of the main points of contact between Mitsubishi and Nintendo when they were collaborating on the color TV games. Yagi had moved on from Mitsubishi to Rico. There was somebody at Rico that had been a very close collaborator with Nintendo. And Rico was desperate for orders for product because they had a new factory that wasn't getting any business. All of the chip manufacturers that Nintendo had gone to had been turning them down because Nintendo needed to hit a certain price point on that chip in order to get to their rather ambitious 10,000 yen price point. Basically, the companies they went to were like, there's no way we could do that. Rico, though, was willing to work with them because they needed the business. However, they suggested one thing. They had recently acquired a license for the Moss Technology 6502. Now, this is a chip, of course, that we've talked about a few times before, right? Mm-hmm. In the Atari VCS, it's in the Apple II. It was in several of these very key early systems, but overall was not as popular a chip in this time as some of the other offerings from companies like Zilog. 
Moss Technology second sourced the 6502 to Rockwell, another American chip company. Back in these days, it was common because the semiconductor industry was so volatile to have a second company licensed to produce a chip so that if one company goes out of business or gets squeezed by suppliers and can't provide what you need, you have a backup. This is basically how the whole industry ran in the 60s and 70s all the way up until the middle of the 80s when Intel decided, I want to say it was with the 386, but I'm speaking off the cuff so I could be wrong, but decided with one of the chips in that area, whether it was the 286 or the 386, that they would not second source it because the PC had become so dominant in the marketplace and Intel, as a result, had become so dominant in the marketplace, they could get away with that. They could get away with telling customers, no, there won't be a second source. And the customer was like, okay, fine, we'll deal with you anyway. That was kind of the beginning of the end of second sourcing. By that time, there'd been a lot of consolidation and a lot more stability in the sector. And you had companies like Intel becoming dominant. In the 70s and early 80s, second sourcing was very common. Moss had second sourced to Rockwell on the 6502, and then Rockwell had licensed Rico in Japan to also produce the 6502. There are several sources where Commodore engineers will say that the Rico chip was an unauthorized 6502 clone, that it was basically a stolen design. My understanding is that's not true, but I think the reason those Moss engineers at Commodore Remember, Commodore is the parent company of Moss. I believe the reason that those Commodore and Moss engineers think that is because Moss didn't directly license it to Rico. It was Rockwell that did it. They weren't aware of the full chain. All they knew is we didn't give it to them. But in fact, it was a sublicense of a sublicense. They have this new 6502 chip. The 6502 is smaller than the Z80, and it's more efficient than the Z80 because of the way it handles its cycles. Now, I'm not a technical person, so I can't explain this particularly well. Because of the way the 6502 operates, a 1.5 megahertz 6502 operates at about the same level of efficiency as a Z80 processor with twice the clock speed just because of the way it, it executes things. They told them, we can do you a 6502. It's a smaller chip, and it's a technically slower chip in terms of clock speed, but it'll work just as well as this Z80, and because of this other stuff, it'll be a cheaper chip. Of course, they've got to hit this 10,000 barrier, so they tell Rico, okay, fine, we'll do that. It did lead to a little bit of problem in the short term and then a great deal of benefit in the long term. Because even though the 6502 was in the Apple II, it was in the Atari VCS, the 6502 had not been incorporated into Japanese electronic products at this point. Virtually no one in Japan knew how to work with the 6502 processor, how to program that chip. This chip was not being kept a secret. I mean, Moss was putting out manuals and whatnot for it. It's not like it was a black box that was impenetrable. But nobody had experience with it. Nobody was working with it. They were all working with Z80s. Nintendo had essentially nobody that knew what to do with this chip, which was a little bit of a problem. They were very lucky that in early 1983, 
they hired another very young engineer named Shuhei Kato, who was part of a microprocessor club at his university that actually had some 6502 processors. Nintendo had one young employee that knew the 6502, and he started instructing everyone else in the company on the 6502. Very unusual for the new employee to be instructing the older employees in very hierarchical Japanese companies, but that's what was happening here. Kato, who was not hired, I don't believe, for his 6502 expertise, but they just lucked into the fact that he knew how to use this, and so that was able to get game development rolling at Nintendo. One of the reasons that Nintendo was able to stay ahead of everyone else and not be copied right away when the Famicom was released was because they went with the 6502 and because no one in Japan knew anything about the chip. Nobody could jump in immediately and start doing similar product because they had to learn the chip first. It's almost an accident that they went with the 6502 instead of the Z80, but it ended up being very important. There's a story in Game Over that Yamauchi went to Rico and said, okay, we'll give you this business, but you have to give us a very cheap price. Rico said, we want to work with you, but we can't give you the price you want. And so then Yamauchi came back to them and said, what if we guarantee you three million chips? What if I give you an order for three million chips? Will you give us the price then? Rico said, Yes, please, because that was a ridiculously high volume order, especially for a factory that was having little success finding manufacturing partners. It's very possible that this story is not true. Florent Gorge, who is kind of the premier Nintendo historian, he's French, he is pretty certain that story is apocryphal. Now, it is true that they got a ridiculously low price on the chip. It's absolutely true they got a very low price. Yamauchi himself denied this in interviews with the Japanese press. It makes sense that they wouldn't have had to guarantee a large order. I mean, Rico was so desperate for product, it makes sense that they would just go with it. Whether that story is true or not, it is true that Nintendo got the chip for 2,000 yen, which was a ridiculously low price for that chip. That got their proposed system under 20,000 yen, which is good, but they couldn't get it under 15,000 yen, yet alone 10,000 yen. This is where they made a very critical decision. This is one of the most important decisions, quite frankly, in the history of video game console manufacturing. They decided, okay, if we can't get our costs down as low as we want, then the only way to get a retail price where we want it is going to be to forego making money on the hardware. All of the profit is going to have to come from software. Now, of course, we've talked about this before, right, Jeffrey, the the Razer, Razer Blade model. Right. We have talked about this before. We have the Razer and Razer Blade situation where I sell the Razer, the handle part, at cost or even maybe a little bit below cost. Then I sell the Razer Blade, the thing that you're going to be buying regularly at an inflated cost in order to make up that lost revenue 
but I have an evergreen product because you already bought into my system. You go, I'm invested in here. I already have the handle. Oh, the blades are just another five bucks for five blades. It cost me a buck a blade. Yeah, that's okay. Secretly, the manufacturer goes, it cost me 10 cents to make the blade. (laughs) Exactly. There's a real assumption by a lot of people that the Razer razor blade model in video games, that is sell your hardware at cost or at a slight loss and then make all of your money on cartridges, dates back to the beginning of programmable systems. They assume that's what Atari was doing. Nolan Bushnell in interviews has certainly been happy to take credit for the whole idea of razors and razor blades. It's actually not true at all. It is very much true that even in the Atari days, you made more of your money in the cartridges than in the hardware. You were looking at a ROM cartridge, a PCB board with a ROM chip housed in a piece of plastic that you could make for somewhere between 2 and $4 and sell for $25, $30, Now, that's the retail price. The manufacturer doesn't get all of that because you doubled the distribution, doubled the retail. But even then, you're talking about making enormous profit on cartridges. This was recognized and understood in the Atari era. Atari was very keen on creating a year-round cartridge business where they had major releases coming out throughout the year to generate those sales and generate those enormous profits. However, and I know this because I've talked to multiple salespeople at the company, they also maintained high margins on the hardware. Just because they didn't make as much on the hardware didn't mean that they didn't make something on the hardware. Retailers still wanted to make money on the hardware. It's a real tough sell, and we'll talk about Nintendo doing this in our part two of this when we talk about the actual release of the system. It's a real tough sell to tell a retailer to take a product that they're not going to make money on because, trust me, you'll make money on these other products when you do. That's a real tough sell for a business that doesn't have great margins in the first place. Toys which many of these uh, systems were marketed as toys, are fairly low margin. Part of the appeal to the toy industry of the video game is that the video game was a very high-margin product, and the hardware was a high-margin product as well as the software. Atari maintained high margins on hardware as well as software. They did not follow a Razor razor blade model, even though the cartridges were the most profitable part of the business. Nintendo, by necessity has decided that they are going to adopt the Razor razor blade model because Yamauchi has said we have to keep this price down to a certain point. To hit the price we want, we need a system that costs 10,000 yen, their production cost. Okay, you're telling me that you can't make a system that's 10,000 yen in cost? Fine. We'll go with it because quality is more important than price, but we're going to strip all the profits out of it and make our money on software. This is the beginning of the Razor Razor Blade model in video games. Not Atari, Nintendo. And it's a conscious decision because of Yamauchi's specific and exacting price demands. Now we have a second problem. I mean, this provides an opportunity, but it provides a problem. If we have to make all our money on software, our cartridge costs have to be as dirt cheap as possible because we're going to need to milk every last yen out of those software sales. 
Now, of course, the major cost in the cartridge, cartridges are cheap, but the major cost is that ROM chip. Now, Nintendo needs to find, and Uemura needs to find, a company that can manufacture ROMs at such high volume, not just ROMs for Nintendo, but that has such a big high volume ROM manufacturing business generally, because these are just generic chips, they don't need to be customized for Nintendo, that they can offer their ROMs at a very cheap price because of their high volume. What about that nice place that was at 90% underutilization and is now at, say, with those MOS chips around 50% utilization? That's a good thought, but no, they're not really in the ROM business. That's not where they are. Obviously, Nintendo could commission them to also make ROMs, but in order to do this, they need a company that isn't just making ROMs for Nintendo. They need a company that is making so many ROMs just out in the world that they can offer a very, very, very cheap price. Complete economy of scale. Yes, exactly. In Japan, that just has not been a thing up to this period of time. But it just so happens that there has just been a revolution in Japan in word processing. When we think of word processing today, we think of Microsoft Word. If we're a little older, we might think of WordPerfect. If we're a little older than that, there are even some other programs that we would think of. WordStar, Bank Street Writer, etc. But these are software programs. The original word processors were not software programs. They were pieces of hardware. A word processor was basically a device that occupied an intermediate space between a typewriter and a computer. You might have actually seen some of these where you see a typewriter, you see the spool of paper there, but there's also a screen, usually about two, maybe three lines. That's where you can actually type and you pre-type out your thing. You can go back and edit it. And then once you're done making your piece of paper, you press print and then the thing actually types everything out manually. It prevents you having that problem with typewriters where, oops, I hit the wrong key. Oops, the cat stepped on that. Oops, I spilled my coffee. Now I have to retype the whole thing. Exactly. This is something that was cheaper than a computer, but far easier to use and more convenient than a typewriter. In Japan, right in this time period, word processors, which uh, the Japanese call, and I may be mispronouncing it, but the Japanese call Wapuro, W-A-P-U-R-O, were revolutionizing typing, because, of course, in Japan, they have several different alphabet systems. The main system, of course, is kanji, which is a pictographic system, thousands of characters. Typewriters were kind of out of the question in Japan, because can't have thousands of keys. Word processors could deal with this situation electronically by using a system where you have a keyboard that has an array of just representations of about 40 or so syllables. By processing these 40 syllables electronically, the system is smart enough to translate those syllables into the appropriate kanji. So with just about 40 buttons, give or take, you can represent thousands of kanji. Word processing takes off in Japan in the early 1980s. Toshiba gets really, really into word processors. Word processors need ROMs, character set ROMs, etc. So Toshiba is just getting involved in high-volume ROM production at the exact time that Nintendo needs a high-volume ROM producer. 
So now they have Rico that is willing to offer them a ridiculously cheap price on the 6502 microprocessor to power the Gamecom, which is what the project is called at this time, Project Gamecom. Now they have Toshiba, which is able to offer them ROMs really cheaply because they are doing massive production for word processors. Now the economics are starting to make sense. They're not going to be able to get Project Gamecom as cheap as they want it, but they're going to get it cheap enough that they can just forego their hardware profits and then make bank on the software, especially because Toshiba is going to be able to provide them these ROMs really cheaply. So I know this is some kind of minutia, nuts and bolts kind of stuff, but this right here, these two deals with Rico and Toshiba, these are the deals that allow the Famicom to become the success that it become. This is it right here. It's all about the chips. I would say that this is the beginning of Nintendo's good fortune. It's sort of like a perfect storm here of they're able to have this great manufacturer of chips, this great manufacturer of ROM chips, a good environment that's ripe for a demand that's there. You see this again play out in 85 when they bring the Nintendo over to the United States. The U.S. is very hungry for game systems. The U.S. wants game systems. And the environment is just a perfect storm willing to lift up Nintendo and make it go to new heights. Absolutely. We've got the system now. We've got the 6502 processor. They come up with this custom graphics chip, the picture processing unit, PPU, which is very heavily inspired by what systems like the ColecoVision are able to do. It's a tile-based system, graphic system, basically, which means that your backgrounds are made up of blocks of graphics. I think on the NES, they were 8 by 8 blocks. You'll notice that the NES, of course, there's a lot of scrolling games on it, and you notice that a lot of those scrolling backgrounds in individual stage are very repetitive. You don't have many unique elements. It's just kind of the same background proceeding you know, there'll be a slight variation here, a slight variation there, but it's kind of the same rolling sequence behind you. And that's because they're building those platforms with tiles. They make a tile set of standard graphical elements that then they can mix and match together to create these eight by eight blocks. And then they put those eight by eight blocks together to make your background. Of course, it has sprites as well. Sprites are used for the characters in the foreground. That's kind of the system we have here. It's one that lends itself very well to horizontally scrolling games because of the tile-based backgrounds and the way it does sprites. We've got the ROM situation figured out. The next big hurdle is the controller. Controllers up to this point on video game systems have been rather suboptimal. The Atari VCS, of course, is based on a joystick. It has paddle controllers too, but the main control is the joystick. There's a single joystick you hold in your hand. There's a single button you can press on it. The joystick is awkward because you have to stabilize that joystick. So in order to stabilize that joystick, you kind of have to hold it in your hand and your one hand and then use your other hand to move around. It's not perfect. It's something that's adapted from the arcade, but arcade joysticks, because they're anchored to a cabinet, And because arcade machines are more expensive, you can use better and more durable components in that. An arcade joystick feels good. A home joystick at that time really doesn't. Other systems tried other things. 
ESPN Television tried a disc. That's a little better, but it's still kind of hard on the thumbs. It's a little big and bulky to move the thumb around. Then they're putting more and more buttons on these things, buttons on the side, buttons on the front, all of these kind of complicated schemes. There hasn't really been a good controller for home video games yet. So this is a real challenge now that is facing Nintendo. The solution for this came not from Uemura's team, but came from Yokoi's team in the Game & Watch, and we talked about this before in our Yokoi episode, so we don't really have to go into it here, but the D-pad was invented because Yokoi needed a system for Donkey Kong, which was the first Game & Watch game that had extensive horizontal and vertical movement. He needed a system that was compact. It couldn't be a joystick because it had to be on this Game & Watch that closed, that folded over. He needed something compact that would only use one hand and would allow control very similar to the control of Donkey Kong in the arcade. He came up with this idea of having four buttons in a cross formation, up, down, left, right, that you could use a single thumb to press. Now, it just so happened that one of Yokoi's employees in R&D 1, Takao Sawano, had previously been an employee in R&D 2, Uemura's division. He's one of these people that was funneled off to R&D 1 as Game & Watch development was really picking up. Sawano was still very friendly with Uemura, still kept in touch with him. When the D-pad was created for the Donkey Kong Game & Watch system, Sawano, who knew that Uemura was working on Project Gamecom, came to him and said, we've got this thing in R&D 1, the directional cross, or D-pad, that works really well, and we think it would work really well, and I think it would work really well for your system too. You should try this out. So Uemura and his team incorporated the D-pad into the controller for the Project Gamecom, and of course, that's another historically important moment. All of these firsts that Nintendo is setting down in the creation of this system, and, and the D-pad is the next one of those. So we have a controller, we have chips, we've got a casing coming together. They want something that's very toy-like. They get the color scheme. There's some different sources from where Famicom Red came from. At times, people have said that Yamauchi had a scarf that was that color, and he said this should be the color of the Famicom. There's another story that it's actually from the brand of cigarettes that Yamauchi smoked, and certainly that brand did have a red shade to their packages that are very similar to the Famicom's red. But whatever the source, Yamauchi kind of got them up to that red that became very emblematic of the system in Japan, obviously. In the West, we don't have all of these fancy colors, but they were trying to make it less toy-like in the West, not more toy-like. So they have a case. They have some debates over what all should be in there in addition to the console and the controllers, because at this time, there's a real push in Japan towards computer console hybrids, where you have a keyboard and you maybe even have a disk drive and it plays video games, but it's also kind of a training computer. There are several companies working on that. Tomi and Takara, two toy companies, are going in that direction. The MSX computer standard is just on the horizon, which is a computer, but is also marketed as a game machine. Because Yamauchi has been very clear on his price point, they decide to forego all of that. Yamauchi is insistent that this is a game machine that only play games. 
which I think was also very important to Nintendo's success going forward from this. Seems like the price point really helps round everything so that they don't get too ambitious about all the things they could do. Because they have that 10,000 yen price point, they go, if we don't really need it, we don't need to add it. Yeah, there's these other people trying to do the computer thing. Do we really need that in order to achieve our goal? No, no computer. Precisely. Yamauchi does allow them to put a little connector port on the bottom of the system so that they have the option in the future that if they want to offer expansion devices, they can through that port because that's a relatively cheap part. Other than that, they strip it down to the bare minimum, this one singular console that only accepts cartridges with precisely two controllers that are wired directly into the machine. No detachable controller. Again, they did this to save money because to have it detachable, that would be another part. So the very original Famicom has controllers that are non-detachable from the system. The whole system has come into being. The whole system is in shape. The final thing we need is a name. It's been called Project GameCom or the Game Computer. It's gone by the codename Home Video Game Computer at one point as well, but these are code names. They're not really the name. Home Video Computer is kind of the one that I think is winning out for a while. In fact, the product code for the Famicom is HVC001, with the HVC standing for Home Video Computer. But Nobody is completely happy with that name because it sounds very clinical. It sounds more like an appliance than it does a toy, something fun, something entertaining. Uemura has told a couple of different stories about how they came up with the final name. He's gone back and forth on the details of it, but in both cases it involves his wife being the main inspiration. The traditional story, as he usually tells it, is that he comes home frustrated from work. He's like, We're working on this electronic thing, and we're having trouble with the name. We don't have a name that we like. And his wife says to him, it's not a personal computer, as in a computer that is for home use, for the use of a person outside of a business setting. But it's also not a professional computer. It's a computer that's meant to be used in the home by the entire family. So why not call it the family computer or the Famicom? And Uemura was like, yeah. That's a good idea. In the other telling of the story, he's the one that came up with the idea that it was a family computer. He came home, told his wife, I'm working on this TV game machine. It's not a home computer. It's not a personal computer. It's more like a family computer, and we don't have a good name for it. And then his wife's like, well, it's a family computer. Why not Famicom? Either way, Uemura's wife is the central protagonist in how this happened. So he really liked the name Famicom. Yamauchi hated the name Famicom and completely rejected it, then ended up coming back around and being like, okay, we can call it the family computer. Uemura doesn't know why Yamauchi had this change of heart. It's just he came around to it and they called it the family computer. But as I said, never the Famicom. Obviously, it was immediately abbreviated to Famicom by everybody, by the press, by users, by retailers, by everybody. But officially, Nintendo never called it the Famicom. Officially, in Nintendo advertising, Nintendo packaging, Nintendo press releases, etc., it's always the family computer. Sort of like how in the United States we refer to the NES as the NES. I don't believe any kind of official Nintendo media calls it anything other than the Nintendo Entertainment System. (laughs) It's possible 
that they use the term NES some places as well. I just don't know for sure. But right. I mean, NES is kind of the abbreviation of it. But in this case, it was even more strict that, no, I mean, this is really the family computer. It is not the Famicom, though obviously everyone calls it that. It is okay to call it the Famicom. Just know that if you take away a third fact from this, we'll finally give you an important Nintendo fact. Your first fact is that Nintendo did not release the Magnavox Odyssey in Japan. Your second fact is that Radar Scope was not a success anywhere in the world. It was not one of the best-selling Japanese arcade games for a time. Your third fact is that there is no such thing as a Famicom, as far as Nintendo is concerned. There is only a family computer. Please keep calling it the Famicom because that is absolutely a valid name for it that everyone uses. Just know that it is not the actual name of the system. So there you have it. The family computer is ready. We have all of our parts. We have our controllers. We have our casing. We have our name. We've got launch titles ready to go. They just convert their three big arcade hits, Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr., and Popeye to be the launch titles. And we are ready to bring this system out into the world. That is exactly what we are going to do in our next episode. We are going to discuss Nintendo getting the system ready for launch, the initial release in 1983, and the craziness of the so-called Famicom boom in Japan from 1983 to 1986, which was kind of the peak period of popularity for that system. And we'll talk about the Famicom disk system, some of that other stuff, kind of the reaction to the system in Japan in part two of this in-depth look at Nintendo and the family computer. We will see you in part two next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworld. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Welcome to the end, and our secret is revealed. It is not a cat, even though it wants to be. You can get free stickers with the logo on it. Yes. You can get They Create World stickers free by just emailing Jeffrey at theycreateworlds.com. Include your name and address of where I'm supposed to send this thing to, and I'll send you five stickers while supplies last. See you next time, kids. Bye-bye.